spot that gets in the way of a true celebration of Christmas. Obviously, this is a soft pitch. I know I don't have to spend any time convincing you of this. The commercialization and materialism that is so rampant all around us. Uh, you can't go to your mailbox without being reminded of something that of that or turn on the television or just go out to on a shopping venture. Uh, the commercialization of materialism, that is certainly an obstacle, uh, a barrier to a real celebration of Christmas. That would be one. Another would be our soaring expectations as to what it's going to be that season and that celebration of that holiday, which then inevitably gives way to crushing disappointments because it can't ever be all that we expect that it's going to be. And uh, no few counselors in the month of January has to deal with the wreckage and carnage of, of, of high, high, high expectations and crushingly low disappointments that then come in the wake of that, where we put all of our hopes and all of our dreams upon fleeting fleeting experiences and gift exchanges and how, of course, that's going to make it, and that's going to mean so, so very much. And I, Okay, th those are certainly two things that, that are barriers, that are obstacles to a true, lasting, powerfully de in, uh, deep experience of, of the holiday. And I'll give you a third one, and that is our sentimentality. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, our, our image of the manger scene and our obsession with Jesus in the manger scene as but a baby. Without remembering who that baby is. As though it's just about a, ba a baby and just about a family and just about tenderness and warmth and togetherness on that first Christmas. I'm, please don't hear me say anything more than I'm saying. It was a fantastic scene, to be sure. And there is a baby at the center of it. But who is he? Who is he? If you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn now to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. We're continuing on in this little mini-series here in this Advent season, First Things First looking at how Jesus is revealed to us in his true identity, uh, the, the heights and depths of his identity, uh, by looking at John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and Revelation 1. Colossians, if you're trying to find that, that's one of Paul's letters that's in the New Testament, so that's going to be after Romans and after the Corinthian letters, and after Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, you'll hit Colossians. So we are in Colossians, and I'm just going to be reading a few verses. It's in the first chapter Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Hear now the word of God. He, he's speaking of Jesus here, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of His cross. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for the answer to the question, what child is this? We have it right here. We saw it last week in John 1. We see it again here this week. Another perspective on that here in Colossians 1. There is so much here, though. This is such a a deep, profound answer to that question. As we are trying, trying to imagine being there that first Christmas there in the little town of Bethlehem, where you were there laid away in a manger, we ask that you would capture something of our hearts and minds as we go a little deeper in just who it, what this was, who it was that came, and why. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 325 A.D., some 300 bishops were called to assemble in the town of Nicaea, which is in Northwest Asia Minor for a council known later as the Council of Nicaea. They were called together by the Emperor Constantine to resolve some issues that were threatening to divide the church, to really rend the church asunder. And if those issues were not dealt with and dealt with properly, it may well have done so. Right there, you could say, even from the nursery uh, of, of the early church. Much of the trouble was being stirred up by a priest whose name was Arius. Arius uh, did not believe that Jesus was really God. Arius believed that Jesus was, if you will, the highest of the creatures. In Arius's own words, translated loosely in the English, there was a time when he was not. That's a problem. Uh, there's a lot at stake here with that argument and the personhood of Jesus. Is he divine? Is he human? Or could he perhaps be both? There was a man there in attendance at that council, the Council of Nicaea in 325. His name was Nicholas. He was the bishop at a little church in Myra. We know him today as St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was there at the Council of Nicaea. Nicholas, after listening to Arius pontificate a bit on his positions, became so enraged with what he heard, he got up out of his seat, walked across the room in front of all these other men watching, stood square in front of Arius, and slapped him across the face. The first manifestation of, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better watch... Sorry. But it's happened! This is true! This is true. This is the St. Nicholas. Now, you've got to ask yourself, why? Was he just a, an irritable old guy? Was he just impatient, you know, back when he was in elementary school? Did his teachers write on there, doesn't play well with others? Is, is that, you know, what, what's going on? No, that's not at all what's going on. St. Nicholas, Nicholas, the bishop of, of Myra understood what was at stake. You also got to recognize something. If you know anything of, of Nicholas's story, of his bio, you know that he was a faithful follower 
of Jesus, with a heart given towards the justice and mercy for the poor. Nicholas also underwent horrendous suffering in the persecutions that preceded Constantine's ascension to power. Persecutions that had him thrown into jail for years at a, at, at a time. This is not just some rant. He is not just flying off the handle, some loose cannon. Nicholas understands what's at stake with the personhood of Jesus. It is the Christian faith, the foundations of it. It is the message of the gospel. Are we forgiven? Has he come to forgive us of our sins and set us free or not? A creature can't do that. There's a lot on the line. Now, please, I'm not saying that we ought to be ready to go around slapping people. But we ought to take this seriously. We ought to hear what Paul is saying here in Colossians 1 in this beautiful old hymn. Oh, if we could only have heard it. But but first, but Greek scholars really do believe that what he's quoting here is actually from from the, the the lyrical feel of it in the Greek. It's probably he's quoting from a hymn in the early church. We need to, to listen in as, if you will, Paul is writing and singing of, of this this beautiful old Christian hymn, and and understand and hear what's being communicated: the preeminence of Christ, not just the eminence, the preeminence. Of Christ over all things, and then let that shape not just our Advent celebration, but our every day. To hear and understand and grapple with and take to heart the preeminence of Christ and let that shape not just our Advent, but our every day. Well, how do we see that here? In, in two ways, at least two ways. Jesus' preeminence in that he is Lord of the cosmos and Lord of the church. Let's take a look at this, just these two points briefly for a few moments. So Lord of the cosmos. What child is this? That's who He is. Verses 15 and 17. Through 17, excuse me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. My goodness, how do you even begin to unpack that? Well, just briefly. Let's start with this. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the visible manifestation of the eternal invisible God. In Jesus, we see God's nature. In Jesus, we see God's character. In Jesus, if you want to know what God is like, mm, there you go. There you have it. He is the image of the invisible God. He is, as Paul says, the firstborn over all creation. Now, by that, he is not saying that he had a beginning. That is not Paul's purpose in, in using the language that he does. That language, that term, firstborn, is hearkening back to the, the ancient custom of primogenitor, whereby the firstborn son of a family is given all the rights and, and rule over that family. That's Jesus in that sense as first 
born. And He is firstborn over all creation. He is not supreme among creation. He is supreme over creation. All of it. He is God in the flesh. He is the creator of all things. What else does Paul say? He speaks of Him being the, cre- the one who's created all, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and, in, vis- and invisible. I think that's pretty well all-inclusive. He also uses these sweeping prepositions there in the beginning of verse 16. He says, for by Him, and if, depending on what translation you have, you may see a footnote going down to the bottom of the page that then says that could also be translated in Him, meaning that there's nothing that was made that was not that was made without him. He is the sphere. The sphere of everything was of, of everything created comes through Jesus. So it's in him, it's through him. He is the agent, the instrument by which God made everything, and he is all things were made for him. He is the goal of everything. <sighs> He is God in the flesh, He is the creator of all things, and He is the sustainer of all things, as though that wasn't enough. Paul says, he gives the summary there in verse 17, he says that Jesus is before all things. Now by that he means that He he precedes everything before there was time. But not just that, He is before in the sense of over everything. Before time. Pressing further, he says that all things hold together in him. All things cohere in him. It's it's not just that we have our origin in Christ. We have our ongoing, continuing existence because of Christ. Because he is God. And not just in the sense of his kind provision, though that is included, but I mean at the basic level of our sustenance. The fact that you are there in your seat this morning is due only to this work that Paul is speaking of, of his Jesus being the agent, the instrument of creation, and the sustainer of all creation. The very molecules of your body are being held together by the King of Kings. He is the Lord of the cosmos. What child is this? That's part of the answer that Paul is giving us here. My friends, this is why we proclaim the glorious truths that we do, such as articulated as in the Nicene Creed, that, by the way, came from that council, at least partly came from that council of Nicaea in 325. We need to speak those things and be reminded of those things. It's, it's why we sing the songs that we do all through the year, but I would even add, especially this time of year, listen, listen to what, what we're saying. Listen to the wonder of those lyrics and, and let that not just be an expression of your heart, but let it form the deepest thoughts of your, of your mind and where you're dwelling and on whom. My friends, this is also why we pray. And this is how we can pray. Because he is, gee, there's, why, why bother unless, unless he's Lord of the cosmos, which he is. Which he is. I was reminded of something that just, just the other night, we were, we were listening to a, a Christmas CD in the house, and 
uh, an old Irish carol, it was a rendition of it, called The Darkest Midnight. It's a long, long, the original actually is quite, quite long, but, in the, but the last stanza goes like this. Ye blessed angels, join our voices. Let your gilded wings beat fluttering o'er. Whilst every soul set free rejoices and every devil must adore. We'll sing and pray that as always our friends and family defend. God, grant us grace in all our days. A Merry Christmas and a happy end. See, we can sing that and we can pray that because Jesus is the Lord of the cosmos. He alone can hear that and answer that in the ways that He knows is wisest and best because of who He is. Oh, He is preeminent. And oh, may that shape our Advent celebration and our every day. Paul goes on, though, to say that He is not only Lord of the cosmos, but Lord of the church as well. And here we just pick this up in verses 18 and following. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Again, how do you, how do you begin to unpack that? I mean, volumes could and should be written just on those verses. Hours upon hours upon hours could be spent talking that. But just briefly, he is the head of the body. He is the head of the body. Now Paul, here Paul is using, when he mentions the body, he is using an, an, an image that he uses uh, in several of his, his letters, and by that he's referring to the church, the common life of the church, the interdependency of the, the parts of the body, the, 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 the church, the, the sharing, the shared relationship, the shared partnership, the community. The, as I said, the interdependency of the church. But he says that Jesus, and this is something new in Ephesians and Colossians, he says here at this point, Jesus is the head of that. Now, not just, although it is that, it's not just that he is the, the, the source of its life, but he is the source of direction because he is the authority of the church. He is the sovereign king. He is the one whose lead we must follow. It is before him that our knees must bow. Because he is head of the body. Even more, he is the creator of new things. And here you begin to see some parallel in these, you might say, two stanzas of this song here in Colossians 1. Uh, in the second sense of some parallels going back to the first. He's not just the creator of all things, but he's the creator of, of new things. He is, as Paul says, he is the beginning, which is an interesting way to, to phrase that. It would seem that what he's saying there is that he is the author of a, of a new creation. He is the agent not just of creation, but of, of a new creation. And again, in, through, and for him. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. Again, the same connotation there as before in terms of rule and reign and rights and privileges as the firstborn, so to speak. He is, the, as John says, the resurrection and the life, the founder of a, of a new people, of a, of a new age. He is the, the first 
took, and, and the, he is the first rising of the dead, and as Paul says elsewhere, he is the first fruits of the resurrection of our own, of the guarantee of our own rising one day. That is Jesus. That is Jesus, the head of the body, the creator of new things and the reconciler of all things. He makes all things new and all things right. In Him, Paul tells us, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hearkening back to the imagery in the Old Testament era of God's presence there in the tabernacle and in the temple, not just symbolically, but somehow there. And Paul is saying that in Jesus, you have the same. Where is God? There is God. He is the, in, God is in somehow the, the dwelling of Jesus. He, or you could put it another way, He is completely like God because He is God. All these ways to come at this and speak of this and hardly one begins to, to capture it. So you've got to, Paul, it seems he's, he's giving, I, I don't have enough ways to express this in a sense. All, he is the, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus and then the reconciliation of all things coming through Jesus. As I said a moment ago, he's the agent of creation. He is the agent of, of recreation. Because of the, of the war, because of the enmity between heaven and earth, he, he comes and by the blood of his cross, as he says there in verse 20, by the, the blood of his cross in space and in time, peace, shalom, has come and is coming. Through him. Again, what child is this? laid to rest on Mary's lap, is, is sleeping. The Lord of the cosmos and the Lord of the church. And again, th this is who's coming we celebrate this time of year. This is, is who's coming. This is what he, he came to do. This is why we, we you know, goodness gracious, poinsettias are out and something up there and this crazy tie and, and all the, the stuff. We That's what the celebration is about, or at least it's supposed to be. This, this is why we are called again and again through the Scriptures to, to hearts and expression, a response of gratitude. I mean, is it, could, it not, could it be any clearer who is doing this? Who is behind this? Such that our response, our natural response to the degree to which we are understanding this and taking it to heart and embracing it, ours would then be a response of wonder and awe and thanksgiving and gratitude for all that He has done. But not just gratitude, but also assurance. Because again, who's, who's done this? Who's done this? And so by then an inference, who can undo this? Do you see? So it's not just gratitude and thanksgiving, but it's rest. Let's, let's, let this give your, your soul peace at 3 a.m. when you can't go back to sleep. Know this! Who is the author of your salvation and who holds you? And will not let you go because he cannot. Such is your security, such is the assurance that you can have because of who has done this. And oh, one more thing. Beyond gratitude and assurance, I would just put it this way, a sweetness. A sweetness of knowing, again, who has done this for you? Who has handed you this gift with your name upon the tag? With you in mind. His affections are so rich and specific for you unto us 
take it a step further, unto each of us, to you, a child is born. Unto us, each of us, to you, a son is given. Embrace that. Hear that. Know that. And know, I mean, that the preeminence of this one who has come, Lord of the cosmos, and he is your Lord if you are his, Lord of the church. This is good news. A little list I came across this past week. 25 easy ways to have the best Christmas ever. <laughs> I'm not going to read all 25. Uh, I will give you a sampling, though. Okay. Um, listen and listen often to Vince Guaraldi's jazz classic, The Charlie Brown Christmas. It will do your heart well. I'll, I'll say that. More candlelight. You need more candlelight in your life. That's also on the list. Go out for a walk in the cold till it turns your face, your cheeks at least, a little, little rosy. Um, read. Read Dickens' The Christmas Carol, if you have to, in a bridged version, if you must. Um, read The Night Before Christmas and Find a Small Child, or at least someone who behaves like a small child, and, 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 and read it to, to them. Find, find things and savor things, all, all things peppermint. Um, go to a, go caroling. Go to a concert. And there's a obviously I've only hit a few of these. Okay, let me say this very very clearly. I like the list. I feel like I wrote some of the list. I'm on the list. And and by that what I'm trying to say is you don't have to throw away the list. And I'm not I'm not I'm not up here trying to be cynical about the list or any of the things on it. There's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But there is plenty wrong if left to themselves. You understand? Because with just the 25, or whatever assembling you want to do, of, of a list like that, you have a shell. You have gift wrapping and nothing underneath. You have nothing. I, I would venture to say maybe a better list would be one way to have the best Christmas ever. One way. And that one way is to continue in growing and understanding and your heart's embracing of who it is that has come and why. Who it is that has come and why. And the rest is great, but it's just a bonus. It's just a bonus. This child that has come is Lord. Lord of the cosmos. I don't have arms wide enough. Lord of the cosmos. And Lord of the church. That's who's come. My friends, He is the sun around which everything else orbits. He is the foundation upon which everything else just rests. He is the fuel that drives, drives it all. May that 
shape the preeminence of Christ. May that shape our Advent celebration. All of it. Color it, shape it, beautify it, inform it. And our very days. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord Jesus, would you increase and deepen our vision of that manger scene? As surely those who were there were struggling to take in who it was that has come. And here, just a few decades later, Paul was writing and making that very, very clear. Lord of the cosmos and Lord of the church. And so we ask that you would fill even our hearts with wonder and awe and gladness and joy and conviction and comfort and courage and boldness. Now, in these weeks, and then in the weeks to come, and all we are and all we do. In your name we pray. Amen.